Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Enhanced Protection Edition. My name is Brent Whitmire, I'm an editorial and features writer, and I am here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday the 20th of November. It's been a dramatic week in the legislature. MLA Maria Fitzpatrick stood up and told a dramatic, incredible story. The NDP regime continued to walk where the progressive conservatives feared to tread, tackling farm worker protection, gender identity and expression, and shutting down coal a little bit. We'll talk about that, plus further adventures in the attempts to unite the right. As always on the Press Gallery, I promise, no matter what, we'll fight to unite the right to party. Here in the studio, only two weeks off the farm, we have city columnist Paula Simons. Howdy. And provincial affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. You both look fantastic. As you say every week. <laughs> Sounds a little hollow after a while. It's a good thing that Ed Kaiser is here to record our... our so people, yes, people will know how beautiful it's, we it's, actually are. It wasn't true last week, but this week it is absolutely true. Let's just start with that scene in the legislature on Monday uh, when, when Lethbridge East MLA Maria Fitzpatrick told her own experience of domestic violence. Uh, Miriam, you, you've seen a lot at the ledge. What was that like? This was during a debate uh, during uh, Deborah Drever's private member's bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, MLAs were taking their turns to stand up and speak, uh, all of them really in support of this bill, um, talking about basically the, the different aspects of the bill and why they support it. It's a bill that's basically going to protect uh, or, or aims to protect victims of domestic violence. We can talk a little bit about the details of it um, in a minute. And so, you know, I was listening to the debate as I usually do and and was sort of working on other stories at the same time. And then Emily Fitzpatrick stood up and the thing that caught my attention first was she was holding a copy of uh, the Saturday edition of the journal Mm -hmm. and it was the insight section. It was a feature that Jana Pruden had done, our colleague, uh, called Domestic Silence and basically uncovering uh, stories of domestic violence victims and and people on the other side as well, the perpetrators. Uh, And so she was holding this up and what caught my attention was that the speaker uh, sort of admonished her because you're not allowed to use props in the house and that includes a newspaper story. So, you know, that, that caught my attention and I started to pay attention and then she began to tell the story and it became really apparent very quickly that she was talking about herself uh, you know she didn't, she didn't just stand up and say this is my story she sort of eased into it a little bit and it became obvious that she was talking about herself after a few seconds and it became really obvious that this was something that was a lot for her to, to stand up and say mm-hmm. talking about um, a nine-year uh, period in her life in which she was consistently abused by her ex-husband she talked about really devastating things like suffering miscarriages, uh, being sexually assaulted, uh, waking up at one point with a gun pulled um, um, to her head to, to realize there was a gun, uh, that he had had a gun uh, to her head. And it was silent in the legislature. I mean, except for, you know, people's audible reactions to to some of these things that she was sharing with them. It was really remarkable. And, and you know, she spoke for, for about six or seven minutes. And then after she was finished, Every single person in the legislature stood up and gave her a uh, standing ovation that lasted for about 30 seconds. And it was really, I think, one of the most remarkable um, speeches I've ever seen delivered in the legislature. You know, there have been other occasions where, where people have stood up and, and, and shared those kinds of stories. Uh, people might remember Pearl Callahayson, who was a former MLA. She, she stood up and talked about her experience with residential schools. And this sort of really reminded me of that, you know, really raw, genuine um, emotion in the legislature, which we really don't see all that often you know it can be very Mm -hmm. theatrical when people are watching question period but this was one of those moments where you saw really raw um, candid emotion and and experience from from a politician and we don't really get to see that very often and so I think that's why it was really resonating with a lot of people Mm. and I think you know what it 
what it shows, I mean, this didn't happen recently. This was something that happened to Maria Fitzpatrick 40 years ago when she was a very young bride and mother and uh, living with her husband in Cincinnati, I believe it was. Some, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, what was really shocking, I think, was when she talked about not just his violence, which was extreme. I mean, this, mm-hmm. wasn't, this wasn't just a case of, you know, a push or a shove. I mean, this was grotesque, extreme violence. And the complete disinterest of the courts in stepping in to help her. I mean, she said that, you know, the judge basically said, well, this is a, this is a marital matter. If you, yeah. you know, you, you could just divorce him, um, that, they, that they weren't going to keep him in jail. And it, it does show you how far we have come as a culture in 40 years. Not that we don't still have a long way to go, mm-hmm. but it, it was almost like a, you know, when you, when you read the transcript, and I wasn't there in the house, I, I've just read the, the transcript Miriam prepared for us, it's like a horror movie where, you know, where the monster is in the house and you can't escape. Mm-hmm. And I, I was reminded when Justin Trudeau swore in his cabinet, the CBC pulled up some archival footage about the history of women in the House of Commons. And one of the clips they showed was of an MP, um, speak, a female MP speaking about the problem of domestic violence in the House in, I think, the, the early 1970s, around the time that Maria Fitzpatrick would have been being abused. And as soon as she mentioned husbands beating their wives, all the male MPs laughed. Like this was a joke that she was even bringing it up in the House of Commons as an issue. Because it was normative in their minds, I guess, Hmm. that that this happened and it was a private matter. And so I think Maria Fitzpatrick, I mean, it took incredible courage for her to stand up and tell that story, especially, you know, as a brand new MLA with very little public profile, um, you know, this is going to be you know, how she's remembered for, you know, for a long, long time in the House. But it really was a testimony to uh, to the extraordinary cultural work that has been done in the last 40 years uh, by women and by men. To, to make people understand that this is this is not appropriate. This is not socially sanctioned behavior, and it never should have been. You mentioned how far we've come, Miriam. Where where does this bill take take us in in the province in terms of legislation? So this bill is pretty specific. It would amend the Residential Tenancies Act, and what it would do is allow victims of domestic violence to essentially break a lease early if they need to get out of an unsafe home without any monetary penalties. And one of the things that Maria Fitzpatrick talked about was that on the uh, one of the times that she she tried to flee, she had to break her lease and then was saddled with a whole ton of, of back pay that you have to pay for, for breaking um, for breaking a, a lease early. And so that puts an additional burden on a victim who's trying to flee an unsafe environment. So that's what this bill would do. There are various hoops you have to jump through. You basically have to have already shown to a, a predetermined list of people, a police officer or a judge through an emergency protection order or a nurse or a social worker at a, a women's shelter that mm-hmm. you are in an unsafe situation. They have to believe that you are in an unsafe situation. They have to sign a certificate saying that basically... Uh, an oath saying that they believe you to be in danger, uh, which you then take to the residential um, dispute board. Basically, like your your landlord is then compelled if, if if this is accepted to allow you to break your lease. It also sort of essentially would allow you to take an abuser's name off of a lease if they're also on it by allowing you to break the lease, but then signing a new one right away without that person if mm. you need to remain in the home for whatever reason, economic or whatever. There are obviously a whole bunch of regulations that haven't been.
been hammered out but that's that's basically what it um, aims to do it's past second reading so far and so the next stage is committee of the whole i suspect we're going to be seeing some amendments to it there were hints of that from the wild rose caucus and we may even see uh the government put forward an amendment but i think the writing is on the wall i think it's pretty clear that this is a bill that is going to be supported by the government um they've spoken very favorably and they obviously have the control if they want to pass an amendment uh they can of course the other interesting part of this is is the independent MLA who brought it forward, right, right. Deborah yes. Drever, who everyone will remember had a very rough start to her political career when she was elected back in May after a series of um, very unfortunate, inappropriate, and offensive photos from her social media platforms began surfacing. That eventually led to her being kicked out of the NDP caucus and is why she's sitting um, all alone as an independent on the other side of the house. And, and we'll remember that one of those images which she, in which she posed for some friends who were... Uh, launching their their cd um showed a woman in peril it it wasn't really quite clear you know but a woman being menaced suggestive yeah and so you know i I think this is penance in no small part for that 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 she was perceived to have made light of the issue of of the abuse of women the premier at the time this was before before she got kicked out because there of course were like a series of days at photo after photo after photo were emerging in the and the NDP were having to respond to it day after day and one of those days the premier came out and said I've directed Deborah Drever to develop a plan or some kind of a strategy to work with victims of domestic violence and so you know fast forward six months and here we are with this private members bill that has you know the support of almost everybody in the house so well the spirit of it is supported by all of the parties I mean whether the nuts and bolts of it are we'll, yeah. we'll see because because the, the bill may meet, need some fine-tuning I mean it is a bit hard cheese on landlords I mean if you're a small landlord that you have to absorb the cost of of somebody else's domestic crisis mm-hmm. it may not be I mean it's, it's one thing if you're talking about a big corporate landlord but you know maybe there has to be some kind of recompense yeah for landlords somehow but obviously I mean the spirit of the bill and, and it's really interesting because Maria Fitzpatrick's story I mean in some ways it's like she's sort of put a metaphorical you know cloak around Deborah Drever mm-hmm. um you know will this pave Drever's return to the caucus because she has this redemption arc I, I think that's entirely possible although probably not before Christmas what or, do you think? or maybe after the session and before Christmas when everyone's focused on Christmas <laughs> yeah. and not politics did, you, did she have some coaching on this do you think you know i think it, nobody would would be surprised to if, if, if a cynic were to suggest that you know deborah drivers had some behind the scenes help with this uh, drafting legislation even with the help of parliamentary council and, and a legislative assistant is not an easy process we also know that she's obviously still very she's she's still very close with the people um who are sitting on the ndp benches across this, across the house on social media people talk about her uh she sat with um the finance minister joe Sisi in the stampede parade in his car Brian Mason stood like a bodyguard during her first scrum after she was kicked out of caucus and after all of these photos had already surfaced. So there obviously there's a bit of a protective arm around her, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, cynics, I think, do do believe that there may have been some help behind the scenes. Everything seems to have fallen into place very <laughs> neatly. Yeah. Yeah. I've I like the way Miriam says the word cynics. cynics yeah. those, not, not like those of us here. The, the cynics, not unlike the ones pictured here. Uh, <laughs> Me? I'm not cynical. 
There actually was quite a lot of legislation this week. There will be protections in Alberta's human rights legislation for gender identity and gender expression. And one of the more contentious protections introduced this week was Bill 6, uh, the Enhanced Protection for Farm and Rancher Ranchers Worker Ranch Workers Act. Whew. It'll introduce farm safety rules, protections and benefits, minimum wages and vacation pay and things like that. Uh, yesterday, Rachel Notley was defending the legislation from attacks that she hadn't consulted widely enough. She says this bill will save lives and that it brings Alberta into line with the rest of the country. Miriam, should councillors and agricultural boards have been at all surprised by this bill? Well, I'm, I mean, no. The NDP has talked about this um, as an issue for a long time, including when they were in opposition. And they've talked about it since being elected. It was in the platform. And they've also talked about the fact that they were going to bring forward legislation in this session. We've heard that from the labor minister and we've heard it from the agriculture minister. Maybe people are surprised that it did come as quickly as it did in this session. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be interested to see sort of where it goes, whether they, they do pass it this session or whether they keep it on the order paper until next session and maybe do a bit more con- consultations on it. But I mean, this is an issue that's been around for a long time and uh, successive progressive conservative governments have talked about the need to consult and have done those consultations and have spoken to farmers and ranchers and have spoken to people on the other side of the issue who have been advocating for some kinds of protections to be brought in for farm workers. So, you know, at some level, this is something that's been talked about for years and years and years Mm -hmm. and nobody should be surprised that it's something that the NDP wanted to do. Uh, I mean, this is something that really goes to the core of their values, right? Protections for workers and labor and that sort of thing. So I'll be interested to see where it goes from here. I mean, because there are going to be these these town hall yeah. consultative meetings, four of them so far scheduled, I believe. I don't know how much can come out of those and, and sort of what the process is going to be like logistically and then afterwards, how they'll share that feedback if they will and and, and if so, in what form. Um, so I think a lot of, a lot of unknowns are still sort of ahead of this bill yeah and it's interesting this was actually ironically this was the liberals pet issue back in the days when kevin taft was liberal leader Hmm. i mean so kevin taft and david swan have made this one of their you know key planks for years now and i think people have to remember that the farm today is not what it was 50 years ago we don't not we the humble homestead. No, we don't have nearly as many small family farms as we used to. We have giant agribusinesses. Yeah. Uh, you know, and my eyes were open to this a number of years ago when I wrote a story about a young man, an agricultural worker who was working on a big operation up in northern Alberta, and he fell into a piece of equipment that made hay bales. It was like something Dickensian out of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, he died a really very nasty death. And, and f- there was nothing, there were no protections, no compensations. Uh, you know, factory farms are factories. Hmm. A- and, you know, this kind of 19th century idealism about what it's like to be an agricultural laborer. I mean, we're not talking about people who are out, you know, dancing and frolicking with the calves in the fields. We're talking about people who are doing tough, physical work with lots of risk oftentimes for huge agribusinesses and I don't think it's the slightest bit unreasonable for people to have basic you know human rights protections and human you know human safety protections that said um, this is still a province where we do have family farms and we do need to consult but we also need to be mindful of the fact that the family farm can be a romanticized place of great danger um, our colleague and press gallery regular Graham Thompson wrote a pretty stinging column about the why the progressive conservatives were loath to tackle this issue he sort of suggested they were worried about the rural voting base. Do you think that's what it was about? 
and if so is this sort of something that could really you know fuel the wild rose is there is there sort of appetite do you think for uh, a fight on this on this score i I think this is the kind of issue that the wild rose thrives on for sure so absolutely if there's going to be a fight on any piece of legislation obviously aside from the the budget it's going to be this one i mean if they still want to grow they're going to want to grow out from the rural areas and take back some of those seats that the ndp won in especially in northern alberta and try to to make headway there and they're going to try to use this if they can um but obviously they've got a base in southern alberta and this is fits right neatly into it yeah but uh, you know for, th- graham's talked about this before about the fact that the new democrats and the wild rose are not really fighting for the same pool of voters yeah you yeah. know so um i'm have no doubt that this will win the wild rose votes in rural alberta and those people were not going to vote ndp anyway <laughs> so i mean from a very you know cynics might say <laughs> you're the columnist you don't have to say that <laughs> cynics might say that there's very little political risk for rachel notley i mean the number of rural votes that rachel notley and the ndp stand to lose is is pretty small coincidentally the alberta association of municipal districts and counties was holding its convention here in edmonton this week rachel notley is promising green jobs to compensate for the reduction of coal-fired power plants she's not ruling out new tax powers for calgary and edmonton goes to this whole tricky tricky issue about funding uh distribution of tax revenue in in alberta which has been a long-standing issue Uh, am i am i beating a dead horse here by saying does she stand a chance of uh really alienating rural alberta well, it's not so much rural Alberta. I mean, th- those those tax revenues. I mean, it's that that that's sort of that urban Alberta. Yeah, that's the yeah. that's the tricky part. I think, like the Red Deer's, the Grand Prairie, like those bigger cities that aren't that big cities. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of like fighting. The municipal affairs minister Daniel Larravee got a bit of a grilling actually on Monday at the AMDNC uh, over discussions about linear taxes, which uh, most people will like immediately fall asleep <laughs> as soon as you say that yes. those words, linear taxes. It's like, wait, what? What did you? Do? But this is something that they really really care about and she she got an earful so i mean it those are i think the cities that you have to sort of watch and and sort of take yeah. a temperature on yeah. them it's, every it's, once it's, in a you while know, it's the sherwood parks and the fort saskatchewan yeah, especially two. like mm-hmm. if you think about if you think about the the metro edmonton region you've got a lot of uh Duke, you know municipal yeah. districts and counties that do very 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 well out of the current tax regime whereas the big city does not benefit from those in, from that industrial tax base and so the question is should there be a fairer by which edmonton means more for us distribution right. of those taxes that is a trickier needle for the ndp to thread but hey they promised people more money for water treatment and sewage systems (laughs) so you know they'll they'll be fine they'll be (laughs) fine uh earlier this year we talked about the efforts to unite the right to uh pick up the pc pieces man that's hard to say add a little crazy glue and then mash them together with a wild rose opposition on wednesday an organization called the alberta prosperity fund uh, launched and uh, one of their goals is to unite the common sense vote um, Barry McNamara, I'm not sure if that's how you say it. Uh, he's the funds director. He accused the NDP of economic vandalism. Uh, what are your odds on on the uh, unified Rosie Progressive Party? Well, I wrote a story a couple of months back now, um, two or three, uh, the time all blurs, sort of looking at this exact question. The people on the Wild Rose side of the equation, as far as I can tell, and it, I don't think that this has changed from what I've seen, are adamant that if there is a future for conservatives in Alberta, it's under the Wild Rose banner. Mm -hmm. They are adamant. I I have a really hard time seeing this, especially with the, the, I mean, the current sort of progressive conservative 
group of people you know the there are some of them who would never want to align themselves with certain aspects of the Wild Rose Party. People like Sandra Jansen. This yeah, is who, not going to happen. Yeah, who would be who would be much more comfortable in some some sort of Alberta party or Liberal yeah. party than you know? I mean, the progressive end of the progressive conservatives. You know, but frankly, the whole Jim Prentice, Daniel Smith debacle, yeah. I think, has made the idea of a merger toxic. And really, if you're Brian Jean and the Wild Rose and you're sitting quite pretty, why would you want to absorb the progressive conservatives, especially when their house is in financial complete disarray? Uh, and I mean, taking on all those 43 years of power and yeah. all the criticisms. Yeah, yeah. and all those for, yeah, 43 years of, of anger and resentment. And they're much better off to say we are the new and improved small C conservative party. The people that that strands, though, are the red Tories. Uh, you know, the Thomas Lee Kazakhs, the Sandra Jansons, uh, even the men meet bullers. What do you do if you were on the progressive wing of the progressive conservative party? You know, I was speaking with one progressive conservative activist last week who was very involved in the Prentice campaign, who said, you know, there, there has to be a, a new party in the center because Albertans really aren't right and left the way the Wild Rose and the NDP would suggest. You know, there's a that most Albertans are centrist and there needs to be a strong centrist option and it will be the PCs. And I thought, no, <laughs> no, it really won't. Um, you know, maybe there is the possibility for some new fiscally conservative, socially progressive party in the middle, because I think that is where a lot of Albertans stand. But I just can't, the PC brand is so tarnished. Who, who, who would want to pick it up? There's no corporate goodwill there. Yeah, and or corporate donations. <laughs> uh, uh, it's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we share something we've enjoyed, often but not always with political connection. Uh, Paula? I'm going to start because I just love saying the names of British writers by, <laughs> by a piece from The Telegraph by Ambrose Evans Pritchard. When our Financial Post picked it up, had uh, the title of How Saudi Arabia's High-Risk Oil Gambit Could Destroy OPEC While Feeding the ISIL Monster. Hmm. And it was an analysis of the way the Saudis have discounted the price of oil, what that has meant for the OPEC alliance, you know, what it's meant for OPEC members you know, like Venezuela, who are suffering just as we are here in Alberta because of, of low oil prices, and how, uh, ironically, that could be good news for um, ISIS extremists hmm. uh, in Syria and Iraq. So I think every Albertan should read this piece to understand why oil prices are behaving the way they are. And, you know, given all of the international geopolitics around this, I think it's really valuable context to understand what a tiny, tiny, tiny little part of the oil market Alberta represents and why we are buffeted by forces that, that no politician, federal or provincial, could ever control. Uh, Mary? Mine is going to be Jana Pruden's domestic silence feature uh, that ran, as I said earlier, in the Insight section on Saturday. It's a really remar remarkable piece of work, and once you read it, I think you'll realize why Maria Fitzpatrick stood up in the legislature holding it. Uh, I won't say much more about it, though, because uh, there are a lot of people who give their own stories in their own words, and, and uh, they, they do it quite well. Yeah, and from all sides of the, yeah, the spectrum on from that the equation, issue. Yeah. 
Yeah. My good stuff from the gallery this week comes from McLean's, where our old Calgary Herald colleague now with McLean's, Jason Markusoff, has a piece on the Wild Rose opposition to the 9 a.m. sittings. Brian, Jean, and company might not have handled their argument particularly well, but Markusoff suggests that maybe there's actually a good case for starting a little later and having better quality debates as a result. Uh, he suggests that politicians are their own worst enemies on this, fueling this lazy politician narrative. Partisan gains may not be worth the toxic fumes that come to the job and people's respect for political representatives. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com opinion or on the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula and Miriam, for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next time where we'll discuss a 10 a.m. start time to invigorate this debate. <laughs> That's all for now from the Press Gallery.